Hello, listeners. Welcome. You are listening to the last episode for season one of Archives and Things. I'm your host, Melissa J. Nelson. In today's episode, I'm doing things a bit differently. I am going to answer questions from you. A few months ago, I put out a call for questions that I can read and answer on this podcast, and I received some really great questions. Just before I get started, I want to share that this episode contains some racist language. I welcome you to listen at your own pace and take care of yourself if you need to. All right, let's get into it. Question one, can you talk a little bit about why it's important to document and preserve racist history and archival records? This is a really good question. I know from experience that for some people, their impulse is to get rid of racist materials because of their own discomfort with it. But racist archival records represent the truth about our past. They reflect historical attitudes and perspectives that were prevalent at the time. It's important that we acknowledge the existence of racist materials and maintain the integrity of the historical record. It's also important that we don't censor these records as we don't want to sanitize history. I think archival institutions have a role to play in ensuring these histories are not forgotten. These records are evidence of a past that is underexplored and essentially erased from our collective memory. What I also think is important to note that might surprise some people is that racist materials are key sources for understanding the history of racialized people in this country. This is because of record creation and collecting practices. Racist records speak to the history of racialized people, but through a racist lens. So an example of this is a newspaper article that was encountered by historian Bashir Mohammed. The article was written by the Bassano News, and it was titled, Calgary Nigger Kicks Up Fuss, Wants to Attend Theater with White Folks, But Management Says No. This article was written on February 11th, 1914. It is about Charles Daniels and his civil rights court case that was one of the earliest known cases of its kind in Canada. So consider how little we know about racial segregation and black activism in Canada. This newspaper article highlights a forgotten story of racial injustice. I wanna share a quote by the curator of the Jim Crow Museum of Racist Memorabilia, David Pilgrim. So he said, items of intolerance can be used to teach tolerance. Racism still exists today. Racist archival records can be used to help us understand our past, make sense of our present, and work towards a better future. So I encourage you to read David Pilgrim's statement, Why I Collect Racist Objects, which I will link in the show notes below. Question two. Is there an extent to which archive-holding institutions need to do a better job of supporting archivists, for example, mental health supports, and particularly BIPOC archivists who may be working with these materials? This is another really important question. I think archives have been trying to address this. 
Trauma-informed practices, secondary trauma, and self-care are all emerging themes in archival discourse. There are no best practices on how to support archivists, and particularly BIPOC archivists who are working with racist archival materials. I personally believe that support can look different depending on the individual and their wants and their needs. I think more research needs to be done to understand what supports are being offered to archivists at the moment and where archival institutions can improve. I recently came across the article, Not Just My Problem to Handle, Emerging Themes on Secondary Trauma and Archivists by Katie Sloan, Jennifer Vanderflut, and Jennifer Douglas. Um, and it offers some insight on secondary trauma that is experienced by archivists who work with traumatic records. And it looks at the support that is available in Canadian archival institutions. I would encourage you to read this article to learn more about secondary trauma. Question three. In your own training, were there courses that dealt with the topic of racist materials that helped to prepare you for the possibility of working with them? So I studied Master of Information Studies at McGill University. This program really emphasized traditional theories and practices. So current issues and trends were not properly addressed. I had no preparation for working with racist archival records. It was through research that I learned on my own how to work with racist archival materials and also how to practice self-care my research started after I first encountered a blackface record while I was a student interning in an archive, and I realized in that moment that I did not know how to work with racist archival materials. I have shared what I learned in my research in my blog post, Archiving Hate, Racist Materials in Archives, and also in my workshop, Description and Access for Anti-Black Archival Materials. Question four. Do these same principles apply to museum collections? I once worked at a museum that had a machine intended to do a job typically done by Chinese workers. The machine was called the Iron Chink. Displaying it was obviously controversial. The museum took the stance that, quote, we are not condoning this by exhibiting it. This is history. Yes, the same principles apply to museum collections. Um, in displaying racist objects, museums can teach the public about racism. They also play an important role in accountability. I think it's great that this museum took this stance. When you're providing public access to racist materials, it is useful to address that in a statement. So museums can write statements to make it clear to the public why they are displaying racist materials and that they do not condone it. So for example, the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture has statements on racist materials in their catalog. It reads, objects depicting racist and or stereotypical imagery or language may be offensive and disturbing, but the NMAAHC aims to include them in the collection to present and preserve the historical context in which they were created and used. Objects of this type provide an important historical record from which to study and evaluate racism. Question five. Do you have colleagues at other archives in Canada who are also taking an anti-racist approach to the collections they work with? Do many archives 
has specific policies around working with explicitly racist materials. Yes, I know other archives who have engaged in anti-racist practices, to name a few, the Library and Archives Canada and the Toronto Metropolitan University Archives and Special Collections. I think that the anti-racist description resource by the Archives for Black Lives in Philadelphia Anti-Racist Description Working Group inspired a lot of archives to take an anti-racist approach to their descriptive practices and to also publish public statements on how they are addressing offensive materials that are in their collections. And in creating these statements, some archives have also developed policies around working with racist archival materials. For example, the Archives of Ontario has a statement on language and description that is available to read on their website. They also created a description policy which addresses how to describe records that contain upsetting content and harmful or inaccurate language. The policy also acknowledges that descriptive language preferences and needs change over time and that we as archivists are constantly learning appropriate ways to describe. I think it would be useful as well to have policy around providing access to racist materials. This would complement any description policy that an archive has that addresses how to deal with metadata. I don't know of any archives that have a policy around access to racist materials, but I'm interested to see if there has been any work in this area. Question six, as a black researcher and academic, how do you explain the difficulty of searching for black life in colonial archives to white archivists who don't have that understanding? Cheryl Thompson said in the Black Archives Matter panel at the Association of Canadian Archivists that you have to search for white bodies to find black bodies. You have to dig through white histories to find pieces of black histories. You also have to search for outdated and derogatory language to reveal evidence of black life. This all needs to be understood by the archivists. Unfortunately, Many archivists are unprepared for working with Black records because archival education often does not teach archivists how to work with records of marginalized histories. But I think the onus should not be on Black researchers to explain to archivists how to locate records that document Black histories. I think the real challenge is, how do we as archivists learn better ways to support Black researchers in the archives? And how do we learn how to gain an understanding for the Black records hidden in our collections? Question seven. How do you negotiate the place of Black researchers and Black Canadian history when the gatekeepers to memory are white settlers? Yes, archives are rooted in settler colonialism. And for that reason, predominantly white institutions have and continue to be the gatekeepers to memory. But I think that things have been shifting. Since the release of the anti-racist description resource, I think Canadian archives have been reflecting on their roles and responsibilities. But change takes time. I think that the best way we can bring Black researchers and Black Canadian history to the fore is by creating our own archival institutions. For example, as was mentioned on this podcast, the Ontario Black History Society has a campaign to build their own archives. 
I'm also aware of the efforts from the Black Lives Matter Canada and Wild Seed Center for Art and Activism, who also want to create their own archives. I'm excited to see what a Black archive can look like in Canada. And that's the end of the questions. I'd like to thank the listeners who submitted these thought-provoking questions, and I encourage you to check out the show notes below for the episode resources. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please leave a review, rate the show, or contact me through my socials to let me know what you think. Stay tuned for season two. I have a great lineup of guests for you. And with that, I will say thank you for listening. Join me next time on Archives and Things.